not only scholarship in German history and British history, I mean, this is already a lot, uh, but uh, also global and colonial history is what we do and have been doing for um, several decades. And this is uh, one of the reasons, but really not the only one, that we thought of Ulrike Freitag uh, for this annual lecture. So Professor Freitag is... Um, a professor at the uh, Freie Universität Berlin, Free University Berlin, um, at the Institute for um, Islamic Studies, but she's also director of the Center for Modern Oriental Studies there, and she is a historian, and her expertise lies in the history of the Indian Ocean, uh, the Arab nations, um, migration, and urban history. So she is a truly interdisciplinary figure, uh, she marries history with Islamic studies and area studies. Um, and she is a very regular presence in German papers, on German radio and TV, whenever um, expertise on the history and culture of the Islamic world, and particularly Syria, is asked for, which is quite often at the moment. Um, she is also an influential member of many, many advisory boards and editorial boards in these three fields of scholarship, and it's actually too many to mention those. Um, but I will mention one venture in which we, as the German Historical Institute, also have a stake, and that is the German-Indian uh, Mirian Tagore International Center of Advanced Studies, uh, so-called ICAS, Metamorphosis of the Political in New Delhi, and she belongs to the advisory um, board which steers this um, so-called ICAS center through the sometimes difficult waters of contemporary scholarship and politics in India. Um, in Ulrike Freitag's case, this marriage of the disciplines has really worked. Um, this may be because of the many languages she speaks, um, English, Arabic, French, Turkish, Ottoman. Uh, I was quite impressed by that. It may also be because she has a very international career trajectory. She wrote her PhD in Germany um, at the University of Freiburg. She became an assistant professor at Hagen University, again in Germany, but then she moved to SOAS, so just around the corner here, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, where she taught for 10 years as a lecturer in the history of, uh, of the Middle East and the Near East. And from there, um, she became a, uh, she, she first did her so-called habilitation at Bonn University and then became a professor at the Free University in Berlin. Um, it may also be because of the many books the acclaimed books that she has published, and I only mentioned three monographs here because, again, it's a very long list. Um, there's, uh, in 2003, she published in English, Indian Ocean Migrants and State Formation in Hadramaut, and that is um, in nowadays Yemen, yeah, South Arabia. Um, in 1991, she published in Germany, uh, in German, a volume on the historiography uh, in Syria between the 1920s and 1990. And as I have been told, uh, there is a new volume coming out in March 2020, again in English, A History of Jeddah, The Gate to Mecca in the 19th and 20th century, and that is a book with Cambridge University Press. So, the title of the lecture today is Cosmopolitanism in a Global Perspective. She has told me it actually hasn't all that much to do with Jeddah. Uh, I, I'm intrigued. Um, 
And we very much look forward to hearing your talk today. And we will have about 10 minutes or so for questions afterwards. Over to you. Well, thank you very much for this overly generous introduction, Professor Hodenberg, uh, and thank you very much for this invitation, which is very daunting, given the long list of very eminent uh, predecessors. I'm actually going to present you much more with a kind of, how should I say, experiment in, in the history of concepts. And as I said, it's very much an experiment where I'm trying to bring together European and non-European history, and the topic is cosmopolitanism. Um, let me start with a brief consideration of the concept. I will then explore in what contexts cosmopolitanism appears in present-day debates in Western politics, then reconsider or rather try to broaden our understanding of the concept by briefly reviewing its foundations, um, and then look at a number of non-Western approaches to some of the underlying ideas of cosmopolitanism, if not the term itself. And in the final part of my discussion, I will return to the question of whether or not the consideration of such perspectives can make any conceptual and possibly practical contribution to our present-day debates in Europe. So let me start with a brief overview of some of the ways in which cosmopolitanism and cosmopolitans have been discussed in the West recently. Most of you might remember former Prime Minister Theresa May's famous dictum during the conference of the Tory party in October 2016. If you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. This statement was directed at those who represented the, I quote, wealth of London, and did not respect, again I quote, the spirit of citizenship. She aimed this at the, again I quote, too many people in positions of power who behave as though they have more in common with international elites than with the people down the road. If we take the translation of cosmopolitanism as citizen of the world or global citizen, this is what she was discussing. Her statement was widely taken as an attack on people with multiple identities or those who embraced a European or global vision of politics. The Guardian compared May's statement to our very own German, Alexander Gauland's diatribe of October 2018 against a globalized class living in English-speaking bubbles in big cities. Gauland is the leader, as most of you probably know, of the Alternative for Deutschland, the Alternative for Germany, the Eurosceptic right-wing party founded in 2013 which, notably after 2015, turned very anti-immigrant and, one could say, racist, some say even fascist. Let me return to Britain and Theresa May. For good measure, The Guardian added to her statement a very similar one by Adolf Hitler about people who, again I quote, feel at home everywhere. Ostensibly, May and Gauland both criticized the particular type of globalized elite. A recent prominent example of this kind of rhetoric could, can also be found in the US in Donald Trump's address to the UN General Assembly in September 2019. He exclaimed that the future does not belong to globalists, the future belongs to patriots. Gowland's argument had an additional twist. He contrasted the globalized elites to the ordinary workers in precarious or badly paid jobs, concerned about their homeland, Heimat, who feel endangered by an influx of immigrants. 
although he did not um, specify, such immigrants are often thought of as being stuck in their local cultures, such as Islam, which is what I'm mostly concerned with, and thus not defined as cosmopolitans, but rather as a threat to our culture. Obviously, all of this leads us into the midst of current debates about immigration, immigrants, and the dangers of multiculturalism, very prominent in Germany these days. To recapitulate, in Britain, the decision to allow the immediate access of Polish labor to the British market after the Polish accession to the EU sparked substantial angst and caused strong reactions against immigration, initially in the EU context, but also when, in 2015, large numbers of mostly Syrian migrants came to Europe. In Germany, the relocation of industry to Eastern Europe was foregrounded initially, while the 2015 immigration, or more precisely, notably acts of sexual harassment during the New Year celebrations 2015-2016 in Cologne, perpetrated not by Syrian immigrants, but by mostly North African immigrants, has led to an unprecedented polarization of opinions about migration. Let us now reconsider the use of cosmopolitanism. Citizens of the world, globalized class, vaterlandslose Gesellen, we can see here that cosmopolites and cosmopolitanism are by no means universally positive terms. In the Soviet Union, cosmopolitism became a strong anti-Semitic term opposed to socialist internationalism, at least in official parlance. These negative interpretations of the term are contrasted with true patriotism and, depending on background, deviant social, economic, or political positions. Even among proponents of cosmopolitanism, positively connoted, there's no real agreement on what the term actually means. According to Stephen Vertovich and Cohen, it may be a middle ground, and I quote, between ethnocentric nationalism and particularistic multiculturalism. It could be a vision of global democracy and world citizenship, or chances of transnational links between social movements. It could be a term for non-communitarianism, post-identity politics. It could mean to challenge conventional notions of belonging, identity, and citizenship. And finally, it could be used, according to the very same authors, as a description of social cultural processes and behaviors manifesting a capacity to engage cultural multiplicity. Our current debates about cosmopolitanism are rooted in concerns about present-day waves of globalization, economic transformation, and large-scale migration. In this context, it is quite interesting to see how notions of global citizenship seem to be on the rise according to global surveys, for example, conducted by the BBC. This is interestingly notably the case in expanding economies such as India, China, or Nigeria, whereas many of the OECD countries seem to become much more skeptical about a global belonging and tend to emphasize the national context. <clears throat> in recent Western debates on the contentious issue of migration, cosmopolitanism has been invoked as the basis on which the treatment of, a, of the question of migration and its rules ought to be built. Let me give you just one example of one such debate that has become far too vast to be retraced here in any detail. David Miller has suggested to distinguish between weak and strong cosmopolitanism. He argues in favor of the right of nation states to regulate immigration, partly basing his arguments on logical grounds. 
which has been challenged then by another author, Carl Knight, again on formal logical grounds. And of course, the basis of the controversy is not one of logics, but one of political opinion. Jacques Derrida, among others, has emphasized that absolute hospitality is a right which does not require any returns and thus should also not be restricted, for example, by nation states. In this debate, cosmopolitanism is understood as the willingness to accommodate strangers from outside one's own community. Another strand of this debate, exemplified by Kwame Appiah's treatise on cosmopolitanism, emphasizes the respect for differences and potential interest in learning from such differences from each other. This strikes a chord with German sociologist Ulrich Beck's argument that cosmopolitan tolerance involves actively, I quote, opening oneself to the world of the other, perceiving difference as an enrichment. Both Beck and Appiah would agree on a position based on regarding and treating the other as fundamentally equal, which is quite different, obviously, from the initially quoted political statements. <clears throat> Appiah's treatise on cosmopolitanism combines an emphatic profession, um, or, um, yeah, profession to cosmopolitanism with multiple sentiments of belonging, tolerance, and different value systems and engagement with cultural differences, with a strong belief in the nation state's regulatory functions. This might imply limitations to the moral responsibility of individuals, and indeed of states, to save the entire world. This falls short of positions arguing for an entirely integrated world society or, in current political terms, for completely open borders. Appiah regularly refers back to his own experiences in Ghana, but also explicitly bases his argument on Adam Smith. He thus practices exactly what I propose to do in the following um, few minutes, um, and what I consider to be crucial for perhaps a reconsideration and um, slight modification of the term. Obviously, there are also other controversies occurring in the field. For example, the alleged elitism and colonial nature of the very concept of cosmopolitanism has been criticized, notably in the context of post-colonial debates. Scholars have highlighted cosmopolitanism from below, experienced by the lower classes, for example, in the taverns and brothels of port cities. And you see here a coffee shop in Jerusalem, which is not a port city, but was a very cosmopolitan city in the early 20th century. One could, of course, also add the experiences of migrant labor, something dubbed in the Indian case, for example, as rural cosmopolitanism. One of the concepts invoked in the context of such debates has been that of vernacular cosmopolitanism. And this has been um, put forward, for example, by anthropologist Nina Werbner, discussing ethics observed in trans-border South Asian Sufi, i.e. Islamic mystical networks. And she has asked whether Western ethical prescripts associated with the philosophical stances discussed above mean that people beyond the West are incapable of being truly cosmopolitan in their own right, because she observes certain dis differences between how the term cosmopolitan is used very often for upper class um, white elites traveling the empire, and then the actual practices observed, for example, in these trans-border networks. Her concept of vernacular cosmopolitanism responds to the call by a number of notable post-colonial scholars to decentralize a Eurocentric use of the concept. This Eurocentrism is seen as rooted in the Western etymology, 
but more pertinently in the elitist connotations of the concept. Vernacular cosmopolitanism has recently been adopted to, I quote, encompass everyday cosmopolitanism as well as a cosmopolitanism from below, also in non-Western contexts. I would argue that this adjective of vernacular actually enhances the very hierarchization against which Werbner tries to argue. This results from pitting cosmopolitanism as a noun free of adjectives and hence qualifications against a vernacular, i.e. local or particular variant of the concept. This latter might not even be theorized and is in the debates almost invariably non-Western in origin. So we have a clear hierarchy here. Rather than creating such subcategories, we should reconsider the meaning of the noun itself. This, I argue, does more to decenter a merely European version of the concept in the sense in which Chakrabarti suggested and creates a more inclusive and hence more global concept. Let us begin the systematic inquiry by briefly recapitulating the origins of the concept of cosmopolitanism in Western thought to which Kwame Apia actually has referred. So um, um, this is Adam Smith, of course, and Adam Smith himself goes back to Greek and Latin um, concepts, but uh, I don't have the time to go through all of human history this evening. In his theory of moral sentiment, Smith distinguishes between an immediate, egotistic impulse based on self-interest and interpersonal links to relatives and friends on the one hand, and a more abstract, weaker moral commitment towards humankind in general on the other. While Smith sees egotism as a natural impulse, social behavior based on self-control is something which children already have to learn in reaction to the regard to the sentiments of the real or supposed spectator of our conduct. So um, the wider moral sentiment is something which is really very much a social process. That's his argument. While Smith departs from rational self-interest, Immanuel Kant was interested in conditions of eternal peace. His treatise, Vom ewigen Frieden, um, I'm not sure how it's translated just now, is often quoted as one of the foundational texts of Western cosmopolitanism or Weltbürgertum. Kant insists on the right to hospitality in order to pursue commercial interests in particular. This does not, however, entitle strangers to further rights in foreign countries, which are conceived as the cornerstones of world order. Again, states as the center. Thus, Kant would join Adam Smith in the category of weak cosmopolitanism. As mentioned before, hospitality forms the basis and core of the Kantian definition. Indeed, he was not the only one arguing thus. Eighteen years before Kant's treatise, the landscape architect and author on moral philosophy, Christian Hirschfeld, had published a book, Von der Gastfreundschaft, an Apologie für die Menschheit. You can see it on the right. Referring to Scottish philosopher Francis in the, sorry, in the opening passage of the book, he praises hospitality as, I quote, one of the most endearing virtues adorning human nature, which turns nations into siblings and ties continents together. Referring to Scottish philosopher Francis Hutcheson's A System of Moral Philosophy, which Lessing had translated into German, Hirschfeld praises it not only as an obligation of politeness, vis-a-vis -vis persons with whom one has no other special connection, but argued that it was almost constitutive of entire nations. 
He then describes hospitality as a necessity for travelers when there was no regular infrastructure nor security, and this required a certain degree of civilization and material well-being. He explicitly dismisses the theory by Henry Holm of a natural hatred of strangers of different origins, and interestingly explains it, or at least more, more recent history, with barbaric behavior by European conquerors, because Holm actually gives examples from non-European history, and then um, uh, Hirschfeld actually says, well, this is a reaction to the Western expansionist um, drive and to concrete examples or concrete experiences with this. Um, Hirschfeld thus provides a witness account for the very processes which led to the, to the European assertion of civilizational superiority. Eventually, these processes culminated in the kind of colonial cosmopolitanism described by Peter van der Wehr. Hirschfeld thus leads us to the non-Western concepts to which I will now turn. My argument will be that in order to do so, we need to broaden the conceptual net and look at hospitality, conviviality, and sociability. This, I will suggest, allows us to incorporate related non-Western concepts as well as non-Western practices, which might be considered to form practical knowledge into the, um, of the concept of cosmopolitanism. This might also help us to come to a broader understanding of its comp composite meanings. This might not only allow for conversations, incorporating non-Western experiences, but also broaden our perspectives on our very own preoccupations. My argument in the following is that our usage of cosmopolitanism has become entangled with the history of the 19th and 20th centuries, and thus, at least for many, incorporates notions of Eurocentrism and colonial notions of civilizational superiority. I will argue that until the 18th century, perspectives in Western Europe were much more aligned with non-Western perspectives, which then persisted for a much longer period. Let us test this briefly by returning to the ways in which the concept was conceived in the 18th century. Engagement with strangers, notably and notably, travelers of all sorts is a trait found in most societies. And I would like to give you a few examples. Writing about West Africa between 1000 and 1630, Brooks has argued that, I quote, the origins of landlord-stranger reciprocities are lost in antiquity, but their tenets are embedded in the funda funda fundaments of the societies of Western Africa. He details that travelers are provided with food and lodging, and their possessions are secured. Beyond real and fictional kinship, this is based on customary law and the belief in divine sanction. So it's actually a very strong belief, a very strong conviction. And it's instilled in people from their childhood onwards through proverbs, um, socialization, and tales. Often, this is part of a wider web of mutual obligations in which relations with strangers form only one singular aspect. Such seems also to be the case with the Wolof concept of teranga. This is nowadays marketed as the kind of hospitality attracting tourists. A Google search praises restaurants, hotels, and indeed Senegalese society at large as a welcoming uh, society because of this deeply embedded concept. But it is actually much richer and goes um, far beyond tourism. It is central to how social relations are meant to be structured with a complex, complex set of behavioral rules, codes, and principles binding diverse peoples and groups. 
In an analysis of this basic code, Abdurrahman Sheikh has asked, if this system of mutual obligations does not create a basis for something conceptualized elsewhere as a public space linking individuals and groups to each other, controlling their interactions through a set of moral rules while preserving, for example, religious plurality. In a study of illegal migrants from the Western Sahel, mostly speakers of Suninke in Angola, Paolo Gaibazzi has observed references to a similar understanding of the world. In the description of these migrants of their treatment by Angolan police who were combating illegal immigration. These Suninka migrants complained of a lack of humanity, a term comprising a range of meanings such as solidarity, sociality, civility and politeness, but also empathy, compassion and pity. This was based on the local custom of strangers in Suninka society being automatically considered potential guests in need of hospitality and care. Tellingly, stranger and guest are the same word in Suninka. Gaibazzi points out that hospitality actually sustained, I quote, a wide array of mobilities ranging from casual visits by relatives to large-scale migratory phenomena. As in Werbner's Pakistani case, such hospitality creates a web of mutual obligations. While Werbner argues that hospitality might be given without any expectation of return, it could just as well be an opening move in forging a long-term relationship of gift exchange and debt. Thus, Gaibazzi mentions how one of his respondents had been offering meat to certain Angolan power brokers in order to initiate just such reciprocal relationships. The importance of the gift and reciprocity, emphasized already by Marcel Maus, is the basis on which social relations with strangers are being formed and a sense of community is created. Let me finally turn to my own area of research, now Jeddah does appear. Hirschfeld himself makes a lot of the hospitality of the Orient, mainly among Arabs, Persians and Turks. Indeed, the traditional meaning of Arab hospitality is celebrated in the Arab-speaking world as an outstanding characteristic of the supposed national character, and it is very much romanticized in many reports by travelers to the region. In its most basic form, which is often ascribed to the Bedouin, it comprises often temporary security, protection, and respect for strangers. In Jeddah, a port city on the Red Sea coast of present-day Saudi Arabia, in a distinctly non-tribal setting, and this is important, it's not the traditional Arab hospitality here, one finds a particular sense of hospitality that resonates throughout the coastal region of the Hejaz, uh, which encompasses, among others, two Muslim holy cities, Mecca, the most holy city, and Al-Medina, where the, Muslim pro the Islamic prophet is buried. Even before oil exploration in Saudi Arabia caused large-scale immigration, much of the population of Jeddah, Mecca, and Medina was made up of Arabs from different parts of Yemen, Egypt, North Africa, or the Levant, but also of Turks, Persians, East and West Africans, as well as people of South, Southeast, and Central Asian origin. Only some Europeans lived there, and only in Jeddah, um, not in the holy cities. The vast majority of of the inhabitants of Jeddah, of course, professed Islam, and Mecca was exclusively, and Medina were exclusively reserved for Muslims. This is linked to the sacred character of these two cities. 
in the Hejaz, people framed the presence of strangers as a sacred duty of hospitality to the guests of God. That's a very recurrent term, which is still used today. And the guests of God are, of course, the pilgrims who annually converge on Mecca. This resonates to this very day. Um, the Saudi king still bears the term of guardian of the two holy cities. And during the pilgrimage, he is very proud on exercising hospitality to high-ranking visitors, often politicians. Um, today, the pilgrimage has, of course, industrial scale with a couple of million people coming annually. But even in the past, when the city of Jeddah, for example, only had about 15,000, 20,000 inhabitants and 100,000 visitors a year, um, this was a major enterprise. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, and it was not only a major undertaking, but it was also the economic lifeline of, um, of the economy of the Hejaz, which is a very dry area. Um, besides the pilgrims who passed through annually, there are also large numbers of actual settlers from all over the Muslim world. Nevertheless, any argument locally about the presence of strangers is always built on the presence of the guests of God, of the pilgrims. Um, once again, the service of the guests of God was not just locally considered to be a sacred duty involving eventual spiritual redemption. It was also, and long before the current um, much documented uh, changes in Mecca, it was also considered already at that time as an economic necessity. And this is actually reflected in proverbs such as al-Hajj Haja, the pilgrimage is a necessity, and not just a spiritual, but of course an economic necessity. This reminds us of the connection of cosmopolitanism and capitalism, which um, you could also see in, possibly at least, in this BBC survey. The difference between Jeddah and Mecca and the toleration of non-Muslims is accommodated in the image of Jeddah being the antechamber or Dehlis of Mecca. In local architecture, the Dehlis, um, which you can see basically on, oops, on, on, on the right side, is um, both a corridor leading into a house but also with the reception rooms to either side, a place to which strangers have access, whereas the remainder of the house is reserved to the family. Thus, all sorts of people, including servants and outsiders, entered the Dehlis, but not the actual house. And the space of the Dehlis therefore also has a slightly dubious image. Um, it's a space in which strangers were present, and from the perspective of a holy city such as Mecca, this can be considered to be a kind of polluted space, polluted by the presence of non-Muslims. What we can observe here then are two different notions of cosmopolitanism in the same region. For Mecca, cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism means accommodating Muslims from all over the Muslim world. In Jeddah, cosmopolitanism actually encompasses also non-Muslim potential polluting strangers. Beyond such conceptual concerns, I would argue that it is also significant how the presence of the foreigners pilgrims and immigrants, Muslims and non-Muslims, was mediated. And for this, it's crucial to consider how the pilgrimage was actually organized. Pilgrims were guided by the so-called pilgrim guides who picked them up at the port, brought them to their accommodation, which had been organized by the pilgrims' guides, and organized their onwards journey to Mecca. This basically means that these groups of pilgrims 
were hardly ever left to roam alone in the city. And it was really the pilgrim's guides who mediated between these strangers, who were also potentially endangering local society, and um, between the strangers and between local society. So um, all these examples which I've given you have in common that while hospitality is considered to be a crucial or even sacred duty, the rights of the guests are limited and the guests need to be somehow um, uh, somehow framed. They need to be somehow also supervised and guided and embedded in equally binding sets of obligations and rules. In other words, it is actually not a recent phenomenon that cosmopolitanism operates in a hierarchical space of social control and indeed in contexts which are often driven by interactions which have at least a significant economic angle, even if they're not outright capitalist. The somewhat limited nature of all the nations of notions of hospitality which um, I have reviewed, notwithstanding, it would seem that many societies eschewing hospitality were also quite open to integrate strangers into their societies. And again, looking at um, Mecca, Jeddah, but also other Muslim contexts, one can see that in marriage is one way, um, marrying one's girls to visitors, and another interesting way is, um, whoops, sorry. Uh, another interesting way is that um, people who, who were immigrants were actually investing in local societies. And very often they did this by investing in the common good. Um, I have brought you here one case again from Jeddah, a school, um, and you can see the massive building, a school which was endowed. Uh, by one prominent immigrant family, and it was endowed with the property of this family, but also the property of many other, very often immigrant families, who gave shops or other houses, which you can see on the right, um, the income of which, which would go towards this common good, this um, common service institution, which in this case was a school. Um, anthropologist Eng Seng Ho speaks in such a context of local cosmopolitans. There's one further important aspect to note. While Kant may have dreamt of eternal peace, cosmopolitan societies were by no means immune to eruptions of intercommunal violence, sadly. Violence has long been considered as a normal part of contentious politics, and analyzing the pro pogroms against Jews in Odessa in the 19th century, Humphrey um, argues convincingly that the cosmopolitan nature of a city is based on transitory patterns of relations expanding and subsiding, evidenced in the, um, evidenced in the occurrence of crowd violence. And this reflects the inherent ambivalence of the stranger even in cosmopolitan societies. He might be considered to be a guest, but he might equally be considered to be an enemy. And you might remember that this ambivalence has already appeared a number of times in my talk. Indeed, it is actually already inherent in the Greek term of stranger, xenos. Let me conclude this brief overview of practices of hospitality, conviviality, and sociability from the global south by returning to my initial question. What does such broadening or decentering of our notion of cosmopolitanism mean for our conceptual considerations? And to what extent does this shape our current political discourse? The first point is the ambivalent nature of the stranger, the guest, 
in most societies. The second point is perhaps also banal, that there was a need historically in many societies to, and a desire to exchange goods, which has meant that different people found ways of accommodating strangers and thereby enabling trade. This was often based on the notion of hospitality, which has been conceptualized in different ways in different societies. Some of these conceptualizations have universalist aspirations, others are very localized. Thirdly, the Western notion of world citizenship, Weltbürgertum, was also built on this common basis, both in terms of current social theory and both in terms of current social theory and in the history of Western political philosophy was predicated on the existence of nation states as the political framework. And this is now a difference between the Western concept and non-Western concepts where the nation state is actually a much later occurrence. Fourthly, how did this particular Western notion of cosmopolitanism develop in Europe at a time when Europe expanded overseas? And this is coming back to Hirschfeld's observation about hostility encountered by European visitors as a result of colonial experiences. The assumption that aggressive expansionism was a specifically Western characteristic underlies much of post-colonial critique of the concept of cosmopolitanism. For example, Argentinian semiotician and post-colonial theorist Walter Mignolo distinguishes three waves of Western cosmopolitan thought accompanied by different types of aggressive expansion. The first one was associated with universal Christian mission, associated with the Portuguese and Spanish empires. The second was the garb of the Enlightenment cosmopolitanism associated with the British, French German, and German empires. And finally, a more recent variant of cosmopolitanism in his view is associated with discourses on human rights and linked to US American domination. And you can see easily that he's talking from a Latin American vantage point. Of course, one might have many questions about such an interpretation and also wonder whether aggressive expansionism is actually a Western preserve. Um, I could also think of Muslim expansionism, for example. I could think of the expansion of ancient Egypt, of the Chinese or Russian empires. But um, Anyhow, I, I think you get the picture. One might also debate the chronology presented by Minulum. One might ask about earlier hegemonic and imperial um, ventures or debate whether the equation of cosmopolitanism and imperialism is quite so easy and unequivocal. And I think I have tried to argue the opposite, actually. Um, the, what is undisputable and, as I noted, was observed already by the Enlightenment theoreticians of cosmopolitanism is the eventual domination or even universalization of a particular Western interpretation in the context of the Western imperial project. Regardless of such finer points, the trajectory outlined indicates that the Western conceptual Sonderweg in the interpretation of cosmopolitanism became mainstream by virtue of the West's political domination and cultural hegemony. The latter is evident to this very day, for example, in academia, when we consider where the funding is, but also which institutions and publications and which languages um, dominate and count in the global system of classification and ranking. And you can find this um, in Africa, you can find it in Central Asia, etc., where people will come with the Hirsch Index as a st the gold standard for um, academic excellence. What consequences can we draw? 
Well, Mignolo suggests that we accept a plurality of understandings of what cosmopolitanism might mean, I would rather like to argue for one more inclusive understanding, and be it only to preserve at least a minimum understanding of what is meant by it, which is to my mind the work concepts should do for us. Otherwise, we might directly use Arabic, Indian, Chinese terms, because we will no longer know what is meant when a concept is evoked. In this vein, I would emphasize the core notion of hospitality as a fairly widely spread, if not global, basis, enabling the emergence and flourishing of different visions of what cosmopolitanism could or should be. Obviously, this does not solve our conundrum of how to interpret what is or is not meant by hospitality, the basis of this cosmopolitan venture. The debate might still invoke very differing, differing notions of how it is that we should deal with strangers, which might still be based on different strands of political philosophy. In the West, it might be about different notions of citizenship and different rights and duties. However, the broadening of concepts would allow us to see, while the concrete specifications might be very European, the more general observation of hospitality and associated rights and obligations is actually not. Please allow me to close with a few thoughts derived from this and take, the, take up again the example of what anthropologist Guy Batsi wrote about the Soninke-speaking West African migrants. In their comments on how they are treated as migrants in Angola, they accept that their cosmopolitan ventures are regulated by codes which clearly recognize their status as guests. This also involves many limitations. In the extreme, they even argue that while they expect to be treated decently, they accept the right of Italy or other European countries to deport them. Similarly, many of my Arab friends, both migrants and visitors to Germany, often express their bewilderment at what they conceive of as a laissez-faire attitude of authorities vis-a-vis -vis criminals, not least from their own countries. This observation means that it is worthwhile to take a closer look at the notions and expectations which govern the behavior of strangers coming to Europe. Most migrants do not propose to take over Europe and impose their own rules or laws or religion for that matter. It's usually not the project. Most observe certain criminal elements in their midst with great trepidation and often embarrassment and are highly critical of sustained missionary efforts by certain religious groups, for example by the Salafists. Such observations do not solve the ultimate political question of how we should formulate our policies and whether we aspire to be a borderless global society or, to f or fa a fairly closed nation state or anything in between. However, a global perspective on cosmopolitanism can, dissect, can contribute to dissect assumptions such as that of a hidden transcript of takeover of our society. And this might actually show shared rather than differing assumptions about the reception of strangers. And it might thus contribute, I would hope, to dampening the often hysterical dimensions of the present day debate evoked by such declarations as that of May, Gowland and Trump quoted in the beginning. Thank you very much. <laughs>